From Brandeis University, welcome to Recall This Book, where we assemble scholars and writers from different disciplines to make sense of contemporary issues, problems, and events. Today, once again, your hosts are myself, Elizabeth Ferry, and my colleague and friend, John Plotz, who is professor of English at Brandeis University. And Hello. I, Hello, John. And I am professor of anthropology at Brandeis University. We are joined today by Sylvia Bottinelli from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, a native of Tuscany. Sylvia Bottinelli started teaching at the uh, museum school in 2010. She is a modern and contemporary art historian in the Visual and Critical Studies Department. Now Visual and Material Studies Department. Visual and Material Studies Department. Yes. Yes. Welcome, Sylvia. Thank you. Um, today we're going to talk about a book that Sylvia edited along with Margarita Dayala Valva, and the title of the book is The Taste of Art, Cooking, Food, and Counterculture in Contemporary Practices. And we're going to talk in general about questions related to food as art, art as cuisine, and the ways in which commodities move through the world in order to make food and how those are represented artistically. So we, I think it's such a fascinating topic. And to me, there's so many different ways in. But can I toss out a couple that I would love to talk about? Absolutely. And one is, I think, a phrase that you you, uh, you and your co-authors use, which is relational aesthetics. Mm-hmm. And that's thinking about the process, meaning I understand it as like the making of art, but also the uh, participating in an art event. Mm-hmm. And that obviously seems to be related to the way in which we associate food with commensuality, eating together, celebrating, like this this sort of social mm-hmm. dimension. Food mm-hmm. as food. event. Right. Food as event. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one side. And then the other side, which I think might be a very long way away, is the materiality of food as object and food as art object. Mm-hmm. And that in a way, I'd love to hear about how you see those two spaces intersecting or not intersecting with one another, because the, the, the food as object brings up questions that you and your colleagues discuss about sort of materiality mm-hmm. and the way in which a food object can be turned into an art object. But right. mm-hmm. but its its status as food then kind of becomes problematized by the very fact of being that object. Mm-hmm. So. So anyway, just mm-hmm. those are those are like two different dimensions that I saw intersecting, and I'd love to hear yeah, your thoughts. Yeah, that's a about great them. question. And again, I think um, the answer is rooted in the uh, meanders of our history. Yeah. So starting in the 1960s, um, artists were willing to question the idea of the canon, but also the um, the traditional mediums of mm-hmm. uh, making art, and so. Uh, they were exploring senses beyond uh, sight as mm-hmm. tools to uh, to understand and to discover art, uh, not necessarily our objects, but art in general. Yeah. And uh, and food really lended itself wonderfully to this because um, it is something that we can look at, but also certainly do experience bodily. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we. Um, we also, so another aspect that artists were interested in questioning was uh, the idea of the author, right? Uh, what is right. an author? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, ideas of intentionality and uh, an exclusivity. The, the artist as a genius was not really responding well in the 1960s to an idea yeah. of a, a fair society where, mm-hmm. um, where meaning was constructed yeah. in a more uh, yeah. kind of... Um, um, democratic democratic yeah. way and mm-hmm. so uh, you know the idea of 
art as something that you consume through the body and that's multisensorial was very important, yeah. but also the idea of sharing authorship through participation yeah. was very important. And so uh, those two dimensions yeah. get connected in this critique of what art used to be. So can I ask, is there some fabulous conceptual art project of the 60s or 70s that's food related that you would talk about? Because I can think of when you're saying that, my mind is racing through all those Yoko Ono examples. Absolutely. Like, but I don't mm -hmm. know what the food, like, I don't know what the food versions of those are. Mm -hmm. so, well, uh, Yoko yeah. Ono uh, yeah. actually uh, yeah. has a piece uh, where she places an apple yeah. on top of a, uh -huh. um, of a pillar. Uh -huh. And... Uh, and then the apple is uh, really something that you're invited to, again, consume and feel yeah. and experience yeah. directly. Yeah. Uh, and so that's really part of that fluxus um, you know, moment of the late right. 50s, early mm -hmm. 1960s, where you're trying to substitute uh, uh, the traditional mode of uh, right. art consumption yeah. with something that becomes more experiential. And yeah. another artist that was uh, still in New York in the same years that Yoko Ono was, that was interested in the apple specifically, yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. was Alan Capra. And so he created mm -hmm. an, an apple shrine uh, in the basement of the Judson Church. Uh, and uh, that was an avant-garde you know, kind of meeting point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and he created a whole labyrinth uh, out of newspapers uh -huh. uh, and stacks of um, media stuff that yeah. he mm -hmm. had accumulated together. And then the viewers had to go through this labyrinth. And yeah. then um, and then towards the end, there was an, a shrine to the apple with apples that people could actually eat and, mm -hmm. and chew. And, yeah. and the idea there from a conceptual perspective yeah. and also from a happening and perform performance art perspective yeah. uh, was that we learned so much, or at least we are exposed to so much through the media and newspapers papers uh, and, you know, the actual presence of the newspapers that were accumulated there were a reminder of that. Yeah. But that information is just so much and so much to, di to digest right. that you really don't get anything out of it. Right. You right. just, You're you know, scroll through it. it. Exactly. Yeah. And then you sc scroll through, you know, the stacks of things and nothing really stays with you. Right. Right. And then in the end, though, you have this other source of information. That's the apple. And yeah. that's right. information that you gather from the actual contact of your body with I it, see. right? Mm -hmm. Like through the senses and then you know you ingest it and there's something that's left uh, to you because the apple becomes you, right? Like that's yeah. what happens with food. Mm -hmm. You are what you eat quite literally as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, you know, that's the kind of knowledge that, uh, right. that uh, Capra was trying to foster. Yeah, that's fascinating. Can, can I, I mean, this is a, a wild connection, but just since I, I imagine our listeners are thinking about like those older paintings, like beautiful Dutch still lives, mm -hmm. in which mm -hmm. you just see this utterly luscious lobster. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm thinking of lobster for some reason or grapes. Right. How would you how how would you play out the comparison between that luscious present but inedible painting versus something like this apple that you mm -hmm. that you're invited to come like fight your way through the art and then mm -hmm. eat. Right. So yeah. that's one of the main differences between uh, representational art that yeah. uh, basically depicts food mm -hmm. and uh, art starting in the 1960s that instead engages with food as material or as mm -hmm. uh, 
a prop for performance is yeah. an opportunity mm-hmm. for exchange that you can actually not eat that yeah. painting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but those paintings are important points of reference for artists in subsequent uh, centuries and, and even in, for artists that practice today. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, the, um, the idea of the vanitas is very strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea that uh, that food that's the king is a symbol for uh, right. and a reminder of the fact that everything changes and dies eventually right. and and um, and in fact, uh, you know that is that is connected to an idea of disgust and how this kind of emotions for of disgust are mm-hmm. have a function of reminding us that overabundance is not uh, necessarily something to look for. Can I pick up on the question about the democratization of this idea of sort of making art uh, more accessible through yes. using food in the 1960s. And, and just, I guess my background for it is from having written a book about um, mineral specimens. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I found, and this was probably starting in the 1980s, but my, my guess is the similar process started earlier for food, which is that mineral specimens used to be kind of mostly scientific objects. And then there was a series of um, projects of different sorts to make them more analogous to art. Mm. and not to scientific objects. And one of the Mm. features of that was to allow them to be much more costly. Because if you're going to say they're like a Rembrandt as opposed to an example of a Gilorite Mm -hmm. or whatever other mineral species, you can obviously charge a lot more money, right? So part of what I got very interested in was sort of the project of of making that analogy persuasive, Mm -hmm. right? And I'm wondering, so, so... Maybe not quite at the same time, but somewhere around there, there's also a project of making food and cooking and cuisine into something that, at least at the higher level, has a much more art-like quality, Mm -hmm. right? And that they're sort of, and partakes of the institutions and the vocabulary and the um, elitism of the art world where it didn't necessarily in the past. Mm-hmm. So I'm just curious yeah. what you think of that idea. Yeah, there is a huge complexity regarding the relationship between institutions and the market and art, not right. only food and art, but mm-hmm. art in general, right? right? And like the first thing that comes to mind, well, first of all, the intentions of the artists that started to embrace food in the 60s were connected exactly to that, undermining the power of the market because you right. can't sell at least they thought that you couldn't sell an art, uh, a, a food, uh, you know, um, item at the same price of uh, a painting. But into the uh, banana and duct tape. That's exactly, right? exactly <laughs> right. So that's uh, exactly where I wanted to go. Now this has been completely uh, turned around because now Mauricio Catalan uh, just taped uh, a banana at the Miami Art Fair yeah. on the wall, and that was, um, I think, one one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. You know, and and of course, then it was eaten by a performance artist that uh, made a point of saying, you know, I was hungry and this was tasting just like the other 120,000 bananas that you could probably find around Miami. Um, But I think it's a huge, huge question. Uh, Artists are... uh, 
on the one hand, always trying to find ways to disentangle themselves from the market. They, in, in, it, it's hard to generalize, but uh, mm-hmm. in many cases, avant-garde artists see themselves as uh, as intellectuals that are trying to advance a certain concepts, ideas, mm-hmm. or, or critique society in a way or another. Mm-hmm. But then they're uh, connected to the system of, uh, again, like of, of fairs and, and galleries, and they mm-hmm. need to support, sustain themselves, but also that's how the the, the game works. And right. um, and so there's uh, lots of contradictions there. I would say it's the same with the uh, realm of the university and... Mm-hmm. Um, and know, the realm the, of, of uh, you know, restaurants. And, and, you know, and the and realm cuisine, of restaurants right? as well. Right. And so we've seen starting, I would say 2006 uh, is a good date uh, to uh, refer to thinking about the, the time when, when uh, um, basically chefs were mm-hmm. entering the art world. Uh, right. So Ferran Adria yeah. was invited in 2006 to mm-hmm. participate in uh, Documenta in Castle, mm-hmm. and Documenta is one of the mm-hmm. uh, major appointments in the art world. Uh, mm-hmm. It happens every five years. It started after World War II and mm-hmm. uh, in, in 55, and um, it is a, a very important uh, kind of really meeting point uh, for people that want to observe uh, what's happened in the art world in the past uh, you know, segment of yeah. years. And um, and so the uh, presence of Adria uh, in that context really sanctioned um, the the idea that food uh, and being creative with with food could also be understood right, as a form right, of art. Right. Yeah, but I, I would love to pursue that more. I allowed myself only one. I have said I was only allowed to bring up Andy Warhol once, but I'm mm-hmm. going to play my Andy Warhol yes, card. Yes. Yes. Can we talk about something <laughs> like this? Or- Oh, no. Hana Arendt is on the one per episode. Right. Oops, I just used it up. Um, but, uh, w- uh, w- with, um, with Andy Warhol, I was thinking about the soup cans. Yes. I mean, c- could you talk more about that in that same context? Because it's it's proliferating. It's present <laughs> everywhere. Somehow by turning it into art, you are She's framing it. She's making a You're face. just really tired of it. <laughs> yeah, oh, no. It's okay. my face. We don't have to. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just find him endlessly fascinating. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> So Andy Warhol started working on the um, on the soup cans representations yeah. or the representations of food uh, or, or industrially processed and packaged food yeah. in his work starting in the early 1960s. Yeah. So we're a little bit earlier than uh, Mata Clark's yeah. you know food restaurant. Yeah. Uh, and more or less around the same time, a few years more or less, uh, of Yoko Ono's and, yeah. and Alan Capra's yeah. uh, performances with, with the apples. For Warhol, he really provocatively embraced uh, the um, idea of industrial production and uh, and marketing and advertising. And, um, and instead of... Um, being critical of it, at least uh, on the surface, he really, um, it really kind of went along with it. And yeah. uh, so the, first of all, representing that those soup cans, yeah. he is making them into works of art, just like you were mentioning before Elizabeth, mm-hmm. right? Like the very idea of placing something into a gallery, or into, into yeah. the realm of the art world, uh, makes it almost vi- like more valuable or uh, sanctions, supposedly right. sanctions. It's 
its uh, importance for you know society. So that soup can now becomes uh, really put on a pedestal, if you will, yeah, right, quite literally. Right. And then there's uh, the mode of display of those objects that, or at least those representations of the objects. That's important because they are yeah. usually displayed in series where they're uh, really one next to the other, next to the other, and that um, elicits references to industrial production once again, right? right? Like production. the fact that mass production and yep. uh, manufacturing yeah. and yeah. yeah, but they're not food art by your definition, right? Because they don't have the food stuff is gone from them. What's there is the lithograph or whatever. Or the uh, yes, mm-hmm. yes, or yeah. at least by the definition that we used in yeah. the taste of art. And then you know these yeah. are really moldable and flexible definitions. Um, yeah. I I don't believe in labels that are too rigid in general yeah. or mm-hmm. too uh, um, yeah. you know that list a certain number of artists and then not not others. Yeah. Uh, but mm-hmm. it does seem to have some relationship to those Dutch still lives as well, right? Yes. Because it's about this is the thing which we can all have. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, honestly, Elizabeth, if we're going to talk about mints and sweetness and power, it's also like the jam jar in Sidney yes. Mintz's account of sugar. You know, everybody mm-hmm. can have sugar. Yeah. And the soup can is like everyone can yeah. have this comfort. You know, yeah. it's not just a lobster for a king anymore. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, you know, uh, right, just but a they short... can't necessarily have the print of it. Right? Yeah, they can't. Right. They can't afford the print, but the right. print betokens... And the... And the... The right, print is aware of that. out of this yeah. graphic design background. I hear what you're saying. Yes. He's not a satirist. I no, take that no, point. No, no. But yeah. he's actually upholding the work that somebody did to make the Campbell uh-huh. Soup can attractive right. to you. Yeah. Okay. So Donna Gustafsson uh, did write it, actually an essay about Vanitas in mm. pop art, uh, yeah. just getting yeah. at some of the same conclusions yeah. that you're that you're exploring. Uh-huh. And it's not only Andy Warhol, but there's many other you yeah. know artists uh, mm-hmm. that worked within the pop realm that yeah. were exploring this idea of like um, freezing time, yeah. right, and giving mm-hmm. that sense yeah. of uh, um, you know th- that sense of artificiality almost that goes with uh, with the packaging of, of a food that is organic inside but that looks completely you know steel and almost buried yeah. uh, yeah. you know inside yeah. yeah yeah there's like glorified ephemerality I mean I do yeah. think there is something to that like mm-hmm. I know like in Mintz's book he distinguishes between the sweetness of sugar as the thing that makes it a cheap commodity mm-hmm. versus the decorative element of it but in some weird way like what Warhol does is he makes the cheap art object, I mean, the cheap food object also into... Mm, a, that's an interesting right. connection. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, But there's something about the substantiality of the food art you guys are talking about in the book and, and Mintz's sculptures, which maybe I'll now introduce. So the second book that we wanted to put on the table was Sidney Mintz's Sweetness and Power, The Place of Sugar in... I think it, its original title was The Place of Sugar in World History. Um he actually didn't like that title um, because it, in fact, the book, although it talks about Asia, doesn't talk that much about Asia. Oh, wow. And he often complained because the publishers made him put that in. And whenever wow. anyone would say, but mm-hmm. you say it's world and you don't talk about Asia. He's like, I know. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that pro tip, Elizabeth. Right. Like <laughs> um, <laughs> Who says you don't get value added on a podcast? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the, that sort of crucial moment. So, so just as you were saying, Sylvia, the, you know, sugar up until the Industrial Revolution. Um, well, in the first place, sweetness was... There were many vehicles for sweetness, honey, um, beet sugar, other kinds of things. Um, there were many uses for it, and it was extremely, um, you know, uh, exclusive in its consumption. And there was the connection to the food art is that there was a, a type of art 
um, almost like a kind of centerpiece at, at, you know, aristocratic court banquets mm -hmm. and the banquets of aristocracy of um, objects that were made, decorative objects that were made out of sugar. Um, they were known as subtleties. Mm -hmm. And um, then the, you know, when we say things like sugar became much cheaper, well, the reason it became much cheaper was because of the um, establishment of colonies mm -hmm. based on plantation production and um, enslaved labor, right? So not only is there a big cost, but there's much bigger cost for some people than there is for Absolutely. others, right? And that's kind of the um, uh, one dimension of, of Mintz's argument. The other dimension of it, which John referred to a few minutes ago, is sort of what makes the argument so brilliant, I think, is that... Um, you know, just as, um, you know, plantations in the colonies were producing sugar and bringing the price down, sugar became much more available to an emerging proletariat as a quick um, delivery of calories, mm -hmm. as something that could be easily added sometimes to other colonial products like mm -hmm. tea. Coffee. And coffee. Chocolate. Yep. And that um, could, you know, uh, make it possible for a... Uh, emergent proletariat that no longer um, had a very stable agricultural food source necessarily and that had to be at the mill at a certain hour. Um, and when men and women were often both working in, in factories or in other ways. Yeah. Um, and in England, right? And in, in particular. England, particular, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that the Industrial Revolution was fueled by sugar in both ways, right? Mm -hmm. And he describes uh, sugar and other things as proletarian drug foods, right? Because they sort of, they give you yeah. a quick hit of energy, they're fun to eat, yeah. they, you know, a little but, bit of their their kind of pleasurable luxury sort of sticks to them still, even though they're now available. Because we're lucky enough, um, uh, you know, uh, we were lucky enough to have this conversation because our collaborator, Claire Ogden, had the idea of putting this conversation together. And she is interested in the Futurist Cookbook. And um, she actually, we're going to now have a listen to a little piece of it that she recorded. So, Sylvie, do you want to say anything to just introduce us to the, mm -hmm. the thing, the Futures Cookbook, because I know I've never taught it. I know you have, but absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the the cookbook was um, one of the many manifestations of the futurist uh, philosophy that was very much about uh, really trying to uh, bring art to all different sorts of levels and make art uh, very much part of of life um, mm -hmm. in many dimensions. And so, cooking was uh, one that was included in this bigger picture. Uh, Starting in the in the early 1930s, so uh, a few uh, years, several years after the uh, publication of the the futurist uh, manifesto, yeah. Um, but um, regarding the cookbook, one of the themes that emerges is once again uh, the idea of looking to the future and and trying to do things that were uh, really embracing almost well violence, certainly war, uh, and mm -hmm. then. Uh, so it was it was autarkic in many ways. There was the idea of like cultivating the body and the and the uh, the muscles in mm -hmm. the body. So, yep. for example, one of the aspects that comes out uh, is the proposal to eliminate pasta from the Italian diet, yeah. which yeah. is of course extremely unsuccessful because uh, <laughs> you know it, it was uh, absolutely contrary to the my, idea of nation. My recallable book is all about pasta. So yeah, there you go. Um, okay, great. Well, let's have a listen and then. 
then, um, so we'll listen to uh, Claire Ogden reading from the Futures Cookbook, and then we will come back and, uh, and talk more about it. Nowadays, everyone knows in advance the precise mechanism of events. Family memories, felicitations, and forecasts roll out like newspapers from presses. Our kitchen has banned pasta shuta. We come to this decision because pasta is made of long, silent, archaeological worms, which weigh down the stomach, make it ill, render it useless. You mustn't introduce these white worms into the body unless you want to make it as closed, dark, and immobile as a museum. These improvised dinners are recommended as a means of bringing together the maximum originality, variety, surprise, unexpectedness, and good humor. Sculpted meat, a synthetic interpretation of the orchards, gardens, and pastures of Italy, is composed of a large cylindrical rissole of minced veal. This cylinder, A, standing upright in the middle of the plate, is crowned with a thick layer of honey, C, and supported at the bottom by a sausage ring, B which rests on three golden spheres of chicken meat. D. A whole salami, skinned, is served upright on a dish containing some very hot black coffee and mixed with a good deal of eau de cologne. These crazy excerpts come from the Futurist Cookbook. In the second wave of Futurism, the Futurist Cookbook shocked the Italian nation. It took the prospect of murdering a nostalgia as its aim, founding a blasphemous restaurant, the Holy Palate, and publishing an absurd collection of formulas, not recipes, in its cookbook. With the Futurists, dining was a performance. Marinetti also became obsessed with inserting smell and touch into the realm of food. The combination of sensory elements verges on the insane, eating olives in one hand while stroking sandpaper in the other, to what is now commonplace. They called for a scented dish soap, which is standard practice today. Later culinary innovations, like modernist cuisine, can find their origins in futurism's blending of art and science. But the futurist cookbook, like many manifestos at the time, is full of contradictions. Futurist food was torn between its desire for artistic value and its absolute veneration of the scientific progress of food. As Marinetti said, we may even prepare mankind for the not-too-distant possibility of broadcasting nourishing waves over the radio. Many of the futurist formulas weren't even nourishing. As Marinetti said, it is better not to have any hunger when tasting these new dishes. In the end, the cookbook has fascist, nationalistic aims. Marinetti hoped that a more aesthetically pleasing diet would modernize the entire Italian nation. So really, the aesthetics of food futurism were a means to an end. A desperate attempt to spread futurism's influence further. Despite futurism's failures to incorporate technology into Italian cuisine at the time, we can see in the futurist cookbook the avant-garde dissatisfaction with the present and desire for a more creative, innovative future. Futurist ideas about food did have an influence. In molecular gastronomy today, chefs reappropriate the techniques of the theatrical avant-garde to suit a more privileged cultural framework. Food futurism is part of a larger tradition of the struggle to reconcile food's traditions and history with its creative possibilities. Okay, so many thanks to Claire for that. Mm -hmm. um, you can tell as our sound engineer. Also. Yes. I know, I liked her futurist motorcycle there. Yeah. Mar Marinetti riding away into the sunset. Yeah. 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 Wow, so can we send some food out over the airwaves? Is that? <laughs> uh, that will be... 
revolutionary. <laughs> um, Karol Helstowski wrote a, an essay uh, in The Taste of Art mm. uh, about the Futurist cookbook and really making a point similar to what Claire uh, is is making regarding the fact that there's a, a little bit of a, one of the ingredients of molecular gastronomy is uh, probably mm-hmm. once again, you know, Marinetti and uh, the Futurist Cuisine. Mm. And mm-hmm. uh, so there's parallelisms that are analyzed there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there a particular um, Italian legacy of the Futurists, do you think, that goes through? I would say, for sure, there's been an impact of Futurism on, on art, contemporary Italian art, and, and mm-hmm. even art in the 1960s. Um, although the political tones, uh, the ideological tones of uh, the futurist sure. movement were luckily not embraced afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, you know, that's good, you know, that uh, that being aligned with fascism or that kind of support of war and violence mm-hmm. is uh, important means to really bring the population to a future dimension are clearly not things that uh, more recently artists have supported. Yeah. But I would say that uh, Arte Povera, that is uh, another known movement uh, in Italian and 20th century Italian art that started in 1967, was initially initially baptized neo-futurism. It mm. was one of the one of the possible you know names that you know critics came up Where, with, mm, uh, yeah. and it, it was still uh, because of the multisensorial dimension, the um, interest in performance, see, and yeah. the interest in in view art is something that was more than a, a sculpture yeah. and uh, and a painting and yeah I, I, that's fascinating because actually I was imagining more in line with what you were just saying something more like an anti-futurist impulse you know something mm-hmm. like a repudiation but it's interesting to think about that notion where formal dimensions might nonetheless persist mm-hmm. even though the political you know, iconography of it has to be rejected. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And yeah. for Arte Povera, there was a strong mm-hmm. interest in food once again. Yeah. And food as, a, an, as an everyday material or the kitchen as a space to be explored. And like one thing that comes to mind is the work of Marisa Mertz that was an artist based in Turin. She has a show right now at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Yeah. And her work was was very much centered around the kitchen space, and she used aluminum foil that had just become more readily av- available as mm-hmm. a product that people could use to yeah. preserve foods. And yeah. uh, and you know, fridges in the '60s were again like starting to be uh, more commonplace in, right. in homes yeah. and. Uh, and so she used those, you know, aluminum foils to uh, create sculptures that were extremely light and formed coils uh, and sometimes even, you know, took the, sh- the shape of chairs and really mm-hmm. domestic references. And mm-hmm. those were include basically they occupied all sorts of different spaces in her home. Mm-hmm. And she has this line that's um, that's often uh, quoted uh, where she says she was, uh, um, you know, Tending to her child via uh, in the kitchen and also right. working in the kitchen and yeah. everything was on the same place on the yeah. same level. Right, right, you know, yeah, both yeah. you know the, the creative act as well as the yeah. child rearing. Yeah. Were, and that's so much in conflict with the idea of the artist as a genius that yeah. we right. uh, that we were mentioning before yeah, was yeah. questioned yeah. in those years. Just yeah. as a sideline, right. I mean, aluminum is such an amazing right. modern material because it's both you know the enabler of 
middle class, you know, domesticity, mm -hmm. mid-century domesticity, and also the material that makes skyscrapers possible. Absolutely. Right? And, and during the fascist... And airplanes. Right, so, right. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. A material associated with modernity, but right. at the same time of, of the private... To, to the private sphere. And well, it was so, sort of gendered modernities, right? Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And, and during the fascist period, it was, uh, you know, going back to Marinetti and, you know, yeah. and the context in which mm -hmm. uh, the the futurist cookbook uh, took place. It was, you know, there was a hope that that would be an autarkic, you know, mm -hmm. metal that could mm -hmm. uh, could be used for the, in fact, for airplanes and, you know, mm -hmm. for infra infrastructure and, yeah. and sky skyscrapers or yeah. this, uh, uh, you know, building and, yeah, <laughs> Right, so it was really right. perceived as the, the a possible metal for the future. Right. This might be a great time to turn to recallable books. Yeah, I think mean? so. Um, mm. I have a very short recallable poem. I actually oh, was. Oh wow! Okay. I was going to do uh, "Potato" by Richard Wilbur. Yeah. Um, but when we started talking about Vanitas. I started. I chose another poem in my head, which is a poem that written by David Ferry. It is a two-line poem. Mm. Ripeness is all. What rot? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's the decay curve right there. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's great. Okay. And uh, to you, John? And Oh, well, shouldn't we ask we defer could. to our guest? So Sylvia? I was going to give her the last word. Oh, but, okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so should, should I go? <laughs> yes. You can uh, for it. So uh, I would... I would recommend, I, I would recall, um, the uh, catalog of a show uh, at the Smart Museum in Chicago uh, mm -hmm. titled Feast, uh, Radical Hospitality in Contemporary Art, uh, that was edited by Stephanie Smith. Uh, mm -hmm. That is a beautifully illustrated book with lots and lots of case studies, both historical and more contemporary, that address everything within the food uh, system from uh, agriculture um, and to, to really, mm -hmm. you know, food production to, to consumption and, and feasts of all sorts. Uh, and and um, yeah, so I, I think that that's uh, that's one of the most loved books by my students. So I would Wonderful. certainly. And there, there'll be that. a link available on our on our website. For Great. This. Sadly, the way I discovered the book I want to talk about was by finding the obituary of its author. But it's the wonderful Phyllis Prey Bober. Do you know her? She's an ancient food historian, and she wrote a book which I love called Art, Culture, and Cuisine, Ancient and Medieval Gastronomy. Mm. But that kind of understates how delightful it is on Roman, like extravagant Roman cooking. So mm. I discovered, uh, I learned about garum, like fish sauce through it, and I discovered some of these amazing feasts. And I also found out, reading her obituary, that she was famous um, for her class at Bryn Mawr, she, tend, she would frequently prepare a Roman feast that included an entire wild boar roasted in a college oven. Um, and I don't know about that, but I do know that the book is just amazing on the, um, on the, Rome, the ways that Romans understood uh, basically luxury and consumption and how food represented for them a whole set of meanings that I think is very different from ours. And in fact, that's actually also like the book Courtesans and Fish Cakes mm -hmm. by Peter Davidson, oh, yeah. Yeah, which, which I is love, a wonderful which, is about, book, yeah. which is about ancient Greek kind of the democratic impulse to eat fish together. Mm -hmm. Like it was the it was the meat that you uh -huh. could eat together that you didn't have to sacrifice to the gods. Um, right. But anyway, I love <laughs> Phyllis Bober's book. So that's my recommendation. Mm -hmm. That's great. I could see connections with the Futurist cookbook actually there yeah. because yeah. of the use of uh, honey and uh, 
and meat that was mentioned in one of the recipes that uh, Claire oh, yeah. talked about. Yeah. So yes. Very yeah, yeah. Roman. Yeah. yeah that's good okay. Point. Well, yeah. I think it's time for us to thank you, Sylvia, for, thank for you. coming and chatting with us, chatting with us today. It's been very yeah. wide ranging and I feel like we could go on for another couple hours. It Me has. Too. Now we'll I really want to have a cooking <laughs> I want to have a cooking show where I know. we actually like cook Yeah, over I was the radio. thinking we, why yeah. are we, why were we not talking yeah. about cooking shows? You were promised you promised yes. that you would speak about food porn at the beginning. Food so maybe oh, yeah. that's yeah. another follow up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, thank you so much. Um, yes, thank you. Thank you. Recall this book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It is affiliated with Public Books and recorded and edited in the Media Lab of the Brandeis Library by Plotz, Ferry, and a cadre of colleagues in Boston and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy called Fly Away. Sound editing is by Claire Ogden, and production assistants, including website design and social media, are by Matthew Schratz and Kaliska Ross. Mark DeLello oversees and advises on all technological matters, and we appreciate the support of university librarian Matthew Sheehy and Dean Dorothy Hodgson, and of the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions. You can email us directly at ferry or at plots at brandeis.edu, or you can contact us via social media and our website. If you enjoyed today's show, please be sure to write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may be interested in checking out past episodes, including topics like new and old media, women and political power, minimalism, or some other angle altogether. Other episodes, which we're calling Recall This Book in Focus, include conversations with Samuel Delaney, Zadie Smith, Mike Lee, and more to come. Thank you very much.